You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artist intended to demystify and celebrate the classical music and opera art form. My name is John Jacob. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the series via your preferred app so you'll get an alert every time a new podcast is published. This podcast is also a mild but pleasurable labour of love for which any support you can provide would be very much appreciated. To contribute to its ongoing development, visit thoroughlygood.me and click on the donate button. I've got to eat after all. Podcast 39 features Borletti Bottoni Trust Award winner from 2014, violinist Itamar Zorman. We met at the Southbank Centre in London in late March 2019 to record this podcast. Itamar was born in Tel Aviv, studied at the Jerusalem Academy of Music, Juilliard School and the Manhattan School of Music. He's performed with the Marinsky Orchestra, German Radio Philharmonic, KBS Symphony in Seoul and the HR Symphony Orchestra in Frankfurt and in a variety of international concert venues as well. You can find out more about Itamar at itamarzorman.com. The Bolletti Bretoni Trust's award supports Itamar and other musicians like him in raising his professional profile and in turn helped Itamar research the work of composer Paul Frankenberger who fled Germany during the Nazi regime and moved to the British Mandate of Palestine in the 1930s. There, Frankenberger assumed the name of Paul Ben-Haim and continued composing. The CD, released at the beginning of April, recorded with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, reflects Idmar's ongoing fascination with the Jewish composer and illustrates the way in which the composer's musical language changed over his career. When the perception of a distant land merges with familiar language and a blend of accents, the resulting conversation is something unusual, or at least it is for me as a listener. When the rhythm of that conversation takes an unexpected turn, then attention increases. There is then something almost musical in this conversation, a dialogue of the kind I've not experienced before in this series. I listen to this podcast back in the edit and hear a man who thinks carefully before he speaks, and I like that. We don't do that enough in our everyday exchanges. We don't allow ourselves the time to consider what the person has said and how we can best respond. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting for a moment my contribution to this conversation is especially fascinating. It's the moments in between what I say and how he responds that hook me. They're moments that force me to lean in and focus. Expect lots of delightfully nerdy detail. Thank you. 
the composer, as he is on the uh, cover of the, the album, his name is Paul Ben Chaim. But that's not the name that he was born with, or not the name which, um, which he wrote as, uh, on most of his comp- on all of his compositions, really, until he was 36 years old. He was named Paul Frankenburger. Uh, so he was uh, he was born to a secular Jewish family in Munich. Uh, not musicians. His fa- uh, father was a big music lover, but. Um, uh, he somehow there was a lot of music in the family they had salons and uh, a pretty bourgeois sort of family uh, and he learned he studied the violin, he stu- that's how he started and then he also learned some piano afterwards and started composing mostly songs maybe this is too long a version uh, but <laughs> we'll take the long route no, then. no, you carry on yeah. okay so he studied that in Munich. Then he was enlisted to the German army for the First World War. He lost a brother, also his mother, sort of separately. He walked, I think, something like hundreds of miles back from the war. Uh, so he he was truly a, a German. Well, I, I think he felt pretty German. His music was certainly very German. He mm. set up German text by. Uh, a German poet. Uh, it was very much influenced by Mahler and Strauss, I would say, post-romantic music, mostly experimented here and there with something a little bit more modern, but not not much. He was a patriot. Was he a patriot? So now that's... Oh, is that how you see him? That's what I'm... That's... A patriot, maybe it might not... I think he felt really immersed in the German culture. Right, he okay. felt at home mm-hmm. in German, German culture. Interestingly, even after he left Germany in 1933, they still uh, spoke German at home, right. he and his okay. wife, who was uh, also from there. He, she was, I think, a dancer in a, in a ballet uh, over there. So he kept that. The, the culture very much, yes. Whether he was a patriot or not, I, I don't know okay. enough to say. But in any case, he had a, he was also conducting, and he had a position as the opera conductor in Augsburg, which is an opera house outside of Munich. And then the Nazis came to power, and as a Jewish musician, he could not really stay there. He was fired. He was looking for other jobs, couldn't find any. Also outside of Germany at the time, it was very difficult. And he made the very practical decision to go to what was then uh, Palestine, the British Mandate of Palestine, to sort of check it out. And, and it's interesting, first of all, well, you ask if he was a patriot. He wasn't really what we call now a Zionist in, in the sense that he, he moved there not necessarily because he was a great ideologue, uh, but because he was kind of a pragmatist, it was practical, there was no work for him in Europe anymore, definitely not in Germany, he couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't be a part of the Composers' Union even. Um, yeah, so he couldn't conduct, also works that he wrote were being, performances were being cancelled. So he really saw no future there, uh, and he went to Palestine to sort of check it out. That's where he also, his name was changed. Uh, he felt that that could be a possibility for him although things were really just starting there was not even an orchestra the orchestra was just the Israel Philharmonic was just starting at that time so there wasn't much but he felt 
it's a start. Um, and he moved there uh, after he made a short kind of inquisitive visit. Then he took care of all his stuff in Germany and... I love the music. In Israel, he's quite well known because he's sort of a father figure to the style, what we call Mediterranean style, kind of involved, um, using music of the region, Arabic music, and traditional Jewish music in classical contexts. Uh, so I using materi material. material within a, a classical framework. Yes. The right. question whether how much he actually adapted to. Con co actual concepts of, let's say, classical Arabic music, that's something worth dis discussing. Uh, but he definitely started by just kind of uploading mm -hmm. <laughs> melodies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, do, do you mean that he sort of captured uh, Mediterranean melodies in the same way that, say, Bartok did around... Exactly. Right, okay. That right. was, was the, where he started. But I think, much like Bartok, it eventually really became a part of him. So let's say, I mean, well, I'm trying to think who would be a good example for that. I mean, probably Bartok. So the, Bartok has pieces that are actual folk tunes. But you, if you hear other works by him, they might sound very folk, but they're not really. Uh, and with Berheim, it's the same. He started by actually using actual folk tunes, but then they found their way in a more sophisticated way, at a level into his writing and he also also changed his actual language so if also with Bartok Bartok started writing I mean very early sort of romantic-ish music the piano quintet that's what I'm thinking about then it, it became more and more modernist but sort of uh, he really came to be himself once he inserted elements from folk music into his uh, actual composition. With Benheim it's the same. Uh, you see uses of scales that are not Western, uses of textures that are not really Western. What do you mean by sure. non-Western textures? So, first of all, and that's easy when it's for solo, you know, cla Arabic classical music is not is well homophonic is not the right word but it there aren't they don't use harmony in the sense that western classical music does uh, there's basically a melodic line and, and they modulate within it there's what they call makam mm -hmm. which is like a mode and then they modulate between modes kind of through a song which can take very long with this 
Oh, does that does that say, okay? I, I wasn't expecting to, to to learn about this, and this is brilliant. Okay. Uh, so uh, so bear with me. When I think of modulations, I think of modulations used in pop songs, for example, <laughs> sure, which yes. are usually used in pop songs um, because they want to ramp up the tension. That's right. Yes, uh, essentially, <laughs> um, or, or to give it a little bit of a, a bit of a boost. But my hunch is, when you talk about modulating within a mode, mm-hmm. that actually that isn't the reason for using it, or maybe it is. I don't know. I, I don't, honestly, I don't know enough about classical Arabic music to tell you. But it's, it, it won't be... In pop songs, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, it's usually towards the end of the song. They just take it h- higher, yeah, yeah, yeah. H- yeah. half a step to kind of increase the, the drama. Uh, I think it's a little bit closer to classical, Western classical music in the sense that it's more about color. Certain scales have certain color. They have this certain sort of tension between the intervals. Some are more tense than others. Some, You know, Plato used to say that certain modes they evoke, I mean, if you go back to old Greece, that certain mo- modes would kind of uh, encourage people to go to war, where, uh, while others are you know, are more relaxing, and he has an incredible way of describing them. So, so it's more in that sense, it's, it's different moods in a, in a subtle way. And actually with Ben Chaim, talking about Plato, uh, so he look uh, some of the why look into the music of the region some of it is because you know that's what you hear outside and it's sort of what comes into composition and, and the other one is composers in Israel at, at the very beginning of the state of Israel were looking or trying to somewhat recreate the old biblical sound and that would be just in terms of time it's a little closer to Plato's time you know old Greek so they were looking at those modes and so those ancient Greek modes and those Greek modes are maybe uh, a little bit closer to the Arabic <laughs> uh, modes than they would be to Wagner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, this is uh, a little bit uh, encompassing a, a huge. Uh, yes, I appreciate that we're, we're touching on a very large subject, <laughs> uh, uh, but you're so managing very well, so you must carry on. <laughs> okay, this is a little beyond. Uh, yeah. Also, you know, a lot of it re- really requires expertise and to be completely frank I don't think Ben Chaim really went to the extent of actually going all the way with with the Arabic uh, scales or modes for example he doesn't use quarter tones Mm -hmm. Arabic musicians do he sort of works around it and a this quarter is, tone meaning uh, half a semitone. Half a semitone. This is a, an interval that you don't. Yeah, it's not on the yeah. piano. No. You know, on the piano you have in basically a chromatic scale. You have a C and a C sharp. Mm. And uh, and they are fixed. They're fixed they're pitches. Fixed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're used. Whereas to. on a stringed instrument, you would be able to to go in the yeah, middle. Okay, right, yeah. And it actually has quite a lot of color. Uh, so that you you would call it C half sharp or half flat. Does that not make it very difficult to play, though? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a different sort of hearing. I think you have to really have to get used to it. Right. Uh, and again, I'm not. An, Am an I asking you about that. something that you don't feel as though you're? That's the second thing I've asked you about. <laughs> I mean, I you know I've I have it in my ear a little bit because actually, especially. Um, you know, recently when I was researching this subject, uh, 
preparing for this album I was listening to some you know Arabic classical music and also as a kid I took some workshops trying to play these uh, quarter tones but I'm in no way an, an expert although I, I do find it fascinating anyway with with a quarter tone so they will be in the these are intervals that are not on the piano they're sort of in between but uh, they have um, a tendency so let's say if something is on the lower side it would go towards a lower note if something and and I think Ben Chaim when he tr transcribes this to western terms he would alternate between uh, a C sharp and a C natural uh, so that once it, it sort of goes up a little bit and once it goes down uh, this is very difficult no to no no I, I think I understand that actually what you're doing he, tried, he tries to uh, to notate it but actually, within that notation, there is a range that is expected of the player. Is that? Uh, he, yes, I, I think he would. So he wouldn't go all the way as to notate it as mm. B half yeah, flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he would say, you know, in this melody, when a folk singer sings it, the B half flat goes down to A. So I will note it as B flat. Where it, uh, whereas in this point of the melody, it goes up to a up to a C. So I'll note it as, as a B natural, so that it, the whole thing kind of has an inclination to go up. That does rather suggest then that, that, that as you as the performer, you kind of own the work in a way that perhaps a work that is, uh, or rather you own the performance of the work in a way that a fixed notated work. Mm -hmm. you own Egg less do you, do you see what I mean yes. because yes, there's, I there's a human quantity to it and there's, there's a lot an of interpretation yes yeah. that, that, that is being done there by the composer actually yeah. I yeah. think it's more because I'm not going to change what he wrote but he could have noted noted things differently he could have decided that this sounds to him more like a B flat rather than a B natural but he decided he would go this way because it makes sense for him. Uh, but in but in notating it in the way that he has, then actually he's providing you the performer with more scope for yes. for mm -hmm. interpreting it. Exactly. That's, that's yes. really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you talked about textures, though. So you said that the textures that he used were. Um, talked about different modes. You talked about quarter tones. Were yeah. there any other? Were there any other characteristics? Yes. Uh, and then there is a texture, so that's more uh, relevant for mostly the solo violin things, when there's only one line. Uh, if you listen to, that's actually a work that's not on the album, because it's been recorded a lot, I've played it a lot too. It's his solo sonata for violin, it's called so, um, the second movement. There's only one line. Um, you know, so there's no harmony. Um, and somehow the, and the musical language basically revolves around main notes so the first phrase I'm trying to remember it goes around the note C so it goes so it really just revolves around that note but then you'll see a couple phrases later, it somehow transitions into revolving around a different note. So that that would so that's almost like a modulation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
but it's without any harmony. It's not like you, you know, you do C major, G major, and then from G major go to a different key. It's not like that. So this is. These are it sounds very organic. It sounds yes, very sort of. It is of the moment. It, I'm, and decorative as well. Decorative. I think that's. Uh, yeah, that there are certain notes that are stable, there are main notes, and, and the rest are decorative, exactly as, as you say. Um, so he does use this principle. I wouldn't... Uh, so this is to the... These are uh, elements that he borrowed or adopted somewhat from the music of the region. At heart, the music, I think if you listen to it, is still very Western. The logic behind it is, I would say, even German. Mm -hmm. The way he he sees form like in the violin concerto its first movement is definitely sonata form very clearly he there's always counterpoint so I think in essence he has stayed a European Western German thinking composer but he has adopted quite a lot especially considering that he moved at the age of 36 so he was already a, he had a musical language but he was actually quite open I think to other influences which yeah I find interesting listen to uh, is it evocation evocation yes That's the uh, and I heard I heard Vaughan Williams That's I heard right. Dr. Covey you hear a lot of Vaughan Williams uh, in that I one yes I think I heard Corn Gold I yes. thought there were uh -huh. moments where I thought we're in a we're in a Hollywood movie from the 1930s mm -hmm. uh, it it sounded very rich and very sort of mm -hmm. in terms of rich in terms of influences That's right. rather necessarily than just the, the orchestration and um, and possibly even Jimanovsky. That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh right. Well, I'm not alone. That's good to know. I'm not you alone when, yes. I, when I. No, that's good. which is the earliest work in the album is pretty much how he wrote or closer to how he wrote before he left Europe 
So that doesn't have the Middle East uh, much in it. It's, it's a European. Von Williams, I think, makes a lot of sense. The violin entrance is yeah, yeah, a lot like, like yeah, ascending. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think he was aware of it. No, no. But when was Lark ascending? Really? I don't. I'm, I'm need afraid to, to know. I'm, I'm afraid to say I don't know exactly the date. Yeah. I, uh, but no, clearly, I that would have been. That must have been. He must have been aware of it, uh, assuming that it was composed yeah. uh, beforehand. Um, so I'm, when when was the violin concerto? The violin concerto is uh, in 1960. Evocation was okay, 1960. So quite late. Quite late. Right, yes, okay. a lot later. So the violin concerto is, is quite different. So if in the yes, I think in, in Evocation you do <laughs> that Von Williams opening. Uh, some people really think that the end reminds them of Bloch's Shalomo. Bloch was, in a way, for ma many composers of the time, sort of uh, the, the figure to look up to as someone who incorporated Jewish music, like uh, traditional Jewish music, into classical compositions. Uh, in the end, so, yeah. So some people, it, it reminds them of, uh, yeah, of that. This um, is evocation. Yeah, evocation. Yeah, yeah okay. the, the ending of evocation okay, reminds right. them of, of that. Uh, so by the time we get to the violin concerto in 1960, which I appreciate is very much later, what are we hearing that is radically different? It's different. It's more modern sounding. It sounds less romantic. It's more lean in a way. It's a combination of two things. One is that there was a, he he was popular at some point. There was a generation of composers. Well, when he was alive, that actually really championed his music. Bernstein, Kusevitsky, they played quite a lot of his music. Uh, even some recordings left from that time. And then he was sort of forgotten. Um, 
I think a part of his story is somewhat similar to other composers from the 20th century who wrote slightly more traditionally and are, are now resurfacing. Korngold might be the most okay, well-known okay. example. So those who didn't necessarily pursue the avant-garde. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so were presumably looked down upon because they weren't mm-hmm. being progressive enough. Exactly. Right. Okay. Um, and so it I think it's a terrible shame, actually. Because I mean, you know, on the one hand, it is a terrible shame. At the, at the same time, for somebody like me, it means that. I make I'm constantly making new discoveries That's right. about stuff that I had been previously unaware of, which is essentially what I was doing when I was a teenager. So, <laughs> so in a way, it's not such a bad thing. But it, it uh, the more and more I discover these things, the more I sort of think, God, how if that composer had known that all That's of right. this effort would mean that for 25 years, 30 years, or however long, um, his efforts would go unnoticed or forgotten about. I, I just find that a crushing thought. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But in a way, yeah, as you said, it's, the, the discoveries are fun. Yeah. And there are actually quite a few composers like this. I mean, Korngold is really the, the one that has bloomed the most. But there are other compo- composers like that. Um, I think Benheim is, and you know, Korngold is a more extreme example because I can understand why, you know, if you were living at those tumultuous times in the 20th century and you look at Korngold and this music is just seems like fantasy, it's, it's almost too good to be, to be true for the time. But I son- understand why p- people went in a most e- such an extreme direction for you know the events that were taking off, ha- t- taking shape, uh, taking place in the world at the time. I, well, I understand why people went for music that was much more extreme. My assumption about Korngold is that uh, one of the reasons that people originally sort of dismissed him was because he went to Hollywood. Ah, and, and uh, there's and, that uh, too. You know, and he wrote he wrote loads of film music, which you know thirty odd years ago. I think I'm right in saying that. 30 odd years ago, film music really didn't have the uh, regard, wasn't held in particularly yeah. high regard um, in the way that it is now. Now, some people would argue, well, it still isn't, it needs to be held in higher regard. Uh, but it certainly people respect it and ad- admire uh, what is achieved by it because it's ext- extremely concise writing, it's yeah. writing to a timeline, uh, it's writing for a specific reason. Um, yeah, well, and I'm, not, I'm suggesting that any other composer's work isn't writing for a specific reason, but it's different. But it's, yeah. um, that's my assumption around Concord. That there's uh-huh. a lot of snobbery. Yeah, around there is. My, my assumption about looking at the album is that it was a lot of work, that it was very intense, um, and that it was done from. It came from a place of love and admiration. That's mm-hmm. my impression. Yes. Um, I mean, you're not going to say no, because <laughs> that would be weird. Uh, but I wondered, the thing I was particularly interested in was knowing whether you felt as though your connection with him had changed as a result of working on this. Did you grow closer to him? Did you yes. understand him in a different way? Yes, although I must say, um, the general perception hasn't changed much. And it, it, in a way, it's a good thing. I didn't find that after playing this music a lot, I think of it less, or I find that it's boring. I always find that he has 
first of all, it's it's expertly written. I think that's. I mean, you can connect to the music or find it inspiring or not, but it's expertly written. It's very coherent uh, to uh, to listen to, and, and it makes sense. I do think that he has a wonderful ear, especially for harmony. That's why in, in the album I write it, he's a bit like Ravel. Um, also, he, he likes to employ maybe somewhat similar harmonies sometimes. Uh, I think he, he chooses beautiful but not obvious chords. Uh, I think if you listen to some of the lyrical pl- um, you know, works in the album, there are Bilsus, Faradite, it's the penultimate piece, it's a lyrical piece, or the songs without words. Yeah, you know, if, even if you ask me now to notate it, to, to tell you what the chords are, even though I think I have a pretty good ear for harmony, I wouldn't be able to do it exactly because it's, it's a, on a sophisticated level, he chooses exactly the right notes. It's just as generic chords. And I really appreciate that about him. The music is, maybe again like Ravel, it's most of the time not emotion, it's not an emotional outpouring. You know, it's not it's not Tchaikovsky. Um, Good. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm actually a, I'm a fan of Tchaikovsky. But oh, you are. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> but but it's it's definitely not it's not that. It's I find actually I realize I'm I'm pushing you away from the point. But actually, I find that I can't listen to too much of Tchaikovsky because really? after a while, I just think, yeah, okay, all right, I've heard this before, and I know that's <laughs> that's a ridiculously sweeping statement to make about it. But I think it's possibly to do with the way in which his strong melodic ideas are built up uh-huh. uh, through repetition and through... Yeah. Um, you're not the first person I hear say that. Really? Uh, okay, right, I, uh, fine. So, so you're not alone. But, but, <laughs> but I... For, it doesn't bother me at all and I, I, I love it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is a matter of taste and in the end some people like apples, some people like oranges. Yeah, indeed. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it but then that's also what I what I love about the thing, you know, the fact that that I can listen to listen to something like uh, works by Tchaikovsky and go, yeah, I do like this, but also I don't like this. I, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I don't. I um. I don't have that listening to any other music. Uh, I put you off your point. Uh, I'm sorry. That's what right. were you talking about? You were so talking I was saying about the, the sort of emotional quality of Mannheim's yeah. music. It's mostly evocation in a way. It's a little bit unusual in that sense. It's a little bit more emotionally um, direct. Or yeah, he would stay. I mean, I hate to make these comparisons, but this is just for the sake of making a point. Brahms also is not. He, Brahms always stays with his intellect there. He doesn't go, he doesn't l- leave it and just let's put his heart completely on his sleeve. Brahms uh, doesn't do that. Does either. not. Right, okay. I mean, the music is very emotional. He's actually one of my two favorite composers. So I, I feel like I can speak about Brahms this way. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully I, I won't be... So, yeah. so, for, so for you, Brahms... So doesn't Bra- wear his heart on his sleeve. Not not a hundred percent. Even though it's really intense. Yeah, it is very intense, and it's and it's very emotional music. It's not a hundred percent. Ben Chaim is is in this direction, so he's not gonna let go completely 
I think. Um, then you can ask, even Tchaikovsky probably doesn't let go completely, but I think Tchaikovsky is fur much further on that extreme of just hard on sleeve. Sovenheim is closer to Brahms. I think if you say Brahms Tchaikovsky, I would say he's closer to Brahms. Um, do we know how he composed? Do you know how he composed? Oh, Daily. <laughs> I think it was very German in the I don't want to make stereotypes no, no 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 um, I suppose I, but the reason for asking was just when you were talking about chords and how he was very deliberate uh-huh. about how he put together chords and I just wondered whether that's what triggered the question whether uh-huh. you knew how he arrived at, at those decisions uh-huh. I think he was a pianist but I don't think he necessarily composed near the he doesn't, didn't have to have the piano he would have a very strict schedule I think he would start like so he would compose every day so it was really his job I mean he would he had other work he was teaching and all sorts of stuff but daily he would start the day by going to the beach <laughs> come back sing compose a little bit so he would have a strict schedule and do it every day uh you know, his favorite composer was Bach. And so he treated music a little bit in a professional way in the sense that, or composition professional way that says that you just do it. You, you don't walk around waiting for inspiration to come. <laughs> no, no, no. It just, you work hard and it, and yeah. it comes. And some days it's going to be bad and other days it'll be great. Yeah. You just have to keep doing it. Yeah. So I think that was his method of composition. I'm sure he checked out things on the piano occasionally, but he didn't really need to. So he was violinist. He was, uh, this was his first instrument, but as a professional, he was a pianist and conductor, that was. He actually, as a pianist, he was most, mostly a vocal accompanist. That was really his main strength, I think. That's also how we got to know all these uh, Mediterranean uh, folk music, because there was the singer, Bachat Svira, who asked him at some point to be her accompanist. And she was... Uh, uh, sort of uh, somewhere in between an ethnomusicologist and a folk singer because <laughs> she would research she would go to communities and take those tunes and kind of memorize them and then actually sing it in concert she was a real performer and he, she would she asked Ben Chaim to just write piano accompaniment so that's where he would make those decisions with the, with the quarter tones how to note them on the piano because she would sing with quarter tones because she yeah okay because right. that's how the music yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he would come to the piano and he would have to make a decision because on the piano you can't do it mm-hmm. um, so that's how we got to know this material in a sense um, what did he leave behind did he was he a hoarder was he a diary keeper did he did he document his life, his work? He, I think a lot of lots of letters. He was very organized. Right. So Lovely. you have a lot of these sort of materials. There's some photographs. There's a documentary that was made about him before he died. He's already very ill. You know, it was actually quite tragic. He came back to Munich, you know, decades after he left. I think it was in the 70s to get sort of like a medal, like an honor from the municipality of Munich. And of course, the, the city has changed a lot since then. So he crossed the road that was different, I think, when, when he lived there. And the, the car came and, and there was a car crash. And since then, so he spent months in the hospital. Uh, 
after that he, he was basically ill until the, the end of his life um, he was knocked down by a car by a when car. he went back to his home city to, to Munich yeah so that's really oh. quite a real sad story the etudes that are on the album are one of the very few pieces that he composed after that because he was just weak So there are interviews, footage of him uh, being interviewed at that time of his life. There is that. Do you uh, notice any difference in the attitudes because of that? Not significant. Okay. Uh, well, okay. the, the, the main significant is in terms of performance uh, instructions, there are very, very few. He was actually very meticulous in earlier compositions. He kind of... Yeah, again, like many German composers, he he's, he really knows what he wants, and he tells you here there's a crescendo, here there's an accent, here change the tempo just a little bit. Well, in the etudes, there is nothing. There is a whole movement where there's one dynamic, and you're supposed to make it up yourself. I assume he just didn't have enough, yeah, strength. I just wonder whether whether as a result of it, so obviously that's the first time I've heard that story. My assumption is that that as a performer you might have, you might be tempted to approach those works with a sense of pity or sorrow because yeah. uh, a rather but tragic uh, you know tragic yeah. events kind but of led up to them being written but is that the that music itself be right. doesn't doesn't give me that impression okay, fine. I think I mean the music itself is really continuing the trend of trying to reconcile the western and eastern worlds I think and it's again it's not a late work it doesn't feel like uh, yeah you know there's the Beethoven Quartet uh, the 132 where he uh, he has he thanks the, uh, you know his that his health is, is back so he writes this movement yeah 132 so it's it's not that kind uh, so there is that also, what's very interesting that, that is left from Ben Chaim, only after his death, you know, he basically kept all the works that he wrote back in Germany uh, that, that were under the name Paul Funkenburger, I mean, just in, in a closet in his house, and they, were ne they weren't really open. No one really knew about them. And so they were sort of discovered after his death, and some of them are fantastic and I think they would be very very easy for people to listen to because the language is post-romantic so if you like Korngold I think you're gonna like this he has from chamber music he has a piano quartet and a piano quintet and not piano quintet piano quartet and a string quintet that are really uh, quite wonderful nothing to do with the Middle East but I think um, really worth checking out these are discoveries yeah especially if you like music of the 20th century that's not avant-garde I think it's an interesting place um, to go what are you planning on doing next <laughs> what's the next big project what does that mean? I'm thinking of 
Well, here in London, I need to play the uh, well, another composer that events, historical events in the 20th century sort of affected him is the Karl Amadeus Hartmann. I'm playing his Concerto Funebre. It's a work that he wrote in 1939. He actually stayed in Germany. He was one of those internal exiles. He stayed in Germany, but wasn't part of the Nazi establishment uh, during the war. So that's a, an amazing piece of music that I'm playing here um, in a couple of days. So that's my really next project. One day I would love to record it. I think it's a fantastic, very powerful piece of music. Uh, other than that, in terms of recording, I'm really thinking, I had a, been playing a few times this season, a program that I call the Seasons Around the Globe. It's the Four Seasons, but not just Vivaldi. It's, there are also pieces by Isai, a piece called Chandive, like a winter song. There's the Summer Concerto by Rodrigo. It's another 20th century composer that's a little yeah, off the beaten yeah, path. Yeah. And there's a Piazzolla. So that's a program that has worked really well. It might make a nice album, so I'm thinking of recording that. Uh, yeah, and I'm learning new some new music. I'm learning Szymanowski's second concerto because you mentioned Szymanowski. I'm a fan. Uh, I discovered discovered Szymanowski going to a um, Szymanowski music competition last year in Katowice. Wow! And um, I was completely. I mean, I'd never heard any Szymanowski. Before, really? Uh-huh. And I was completely blown away. Yes, by it. it's. I would just seem to suspend a exactly. moment in time. Otherworldly. Uh, uh, it was remarkable. Absolutely yeah, remarkable. it is. Yeah? Very, very original. And when do you return to Atlanta? And uh, after this on, on uh, Monday night, but uh, just for like... Go back a on couple, Monday night? A couple days. And then, and then I'm going somewhere else. Do you not struggle with jet lag? Are you jet lag now? I mean, I don't know. Probably I am, but I'm, I'm so used to it, it doesn't bother me. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.